Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, and we're very pleased today to have Chris Dixon, founder and general partner at A16Z Crypto, joining us on the show. This is the second time, but the first time uh, freshly, uh, as a fresh author of the new book, Read, Write, Own, Building the Next Era of the Internet. So there's a lot to dive into. Um, Appreciate you sending it over. I want to sort of start with something that I think is quite interesting about um, the approach that you took in in as much as it feels like a a book that kind of is setting the stage or the foundation for what crypto is in maybe a a post FTX world. Uh, There's a lot of skepticism out there in the market following the blow up we saw last year. A lot of people just chalk up crypto to speculation and a bunch of uh, you know, a very nascent um, capital markets ripe with fraud and all sorts of wonky things. But you kind of lay out the value proposition by first laying out crypto's role in the sort of history of the Internet. Um, and as someone who maybe wasn't there like you were, obviously, in those early heady days um, of, of the 90s, let's call it. It was interesting to me because I think maybe some people view the Internet or crypto's role in the history of the Internet as pre-internet, internet, crypto, but you look at it more so as crypto being part of this, maybe let's call it three-stage um, uh, timeline that starts with the owner or the sort of read era of the internet, then the right, right era of the internet, and now having ownership again. And in a sense, it's almost like a return to normalcy, right? Because that early first stage was decentralized. So maybe... Um, Walk us through that sort of timeline. Is that sort of the, is that how you think about the book? Yeah, that's that's right. So, you know, like I got involved, I was a software developer in the late 90s and then became an entrepreneur in the early 2000s. And then, you know, fast forward, I'm now an investor. Um, and I spent my whole career on the internet. I, I got into the internet because it was just remarkable. To me, it was this amazing thing. I mean, that that you would have a, a system that that connected all of the world's computers in, in a way in which, you know, no central intermediary control that system, right? You think about so many other things in the world when we, you know, so, so many other things in the world, there's, you know, there's a big company sitting in the middle of the internet was not built that way. Um, and I thought that was amazing. And if you go back, I cite some of them in the book, there were, there was this feeling of kind of this almost, you know, spring in the air revolution. Um, this was going to change sort of how the world communicates and, and interacts. And, and I, and I, bought into that and, and I, and, and honestly still believe in it. Um, the, uh, you know, it's also, it's closely aligned by the way with other movements in the history of technology, like open source software, which I've also always been a big fan of, you know, Linux and all the other kinds of things like that. Um, and then the story I tell, I, I you know, the, I wrote it partly for folks like you who don't have, didn't live through it. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to give this context. Um, is that as the internet evolved in the 2000s, in many ways it got better. Um, and specifically, uh, websites evolved from being read-only, as I call them, kind of cons- passive consumption into two-way mediums where people could publish. And that was the rise of blogging and then social media, right? And and a whole bunch of things got better. And I, and I don't want to sound negative about this era. Um, 
you you had advanced services that you know went now to five billion people for free. You know, there's a lot of great things that companies like Google and Facebook did, but the trade that happened over that t- time was that we essentially handed control of what was once a decentralized network over to let's call it five companies, maybe ten companies. Right? It's a very all the data shows that the internet has become very consolidated. So the top five tech companies account for 50% of NASDAQ up from 25% a decade ago. The top 1% of social networks, 95% of social networking traffic, top 1% of search engines, 97% of social search engine traffic. You just go through, you know, duopoly of Apple and Google and mobile operating systems, pretty much everything you'd look at. It's extremely concentrated. So I think in some ways we made this sort of, you know, this, this kind of Faustian bargain where we, um, uh, on the one hand, got all these amazing services, and on the other hand, handed control to these four or five companies. And you know, I, I start. I got into crypto about ten years ago, and and got into it through this lens. To me, like, obviously, I'm a fan of Bitcoin and I and the financial use cases of blockchains. Um, but I also saw them as um, a, a powerful. Uh, tool where you could build new internet services in a wide range of categories, ranging from video games to social networks, um, to financial applications, to things involving media and sort of artists and creative people. And just sort of, for me, it was this general kind of new tool for developers to build new internet services, which uh, as I describe in the book, combine the societal benefits of the early internet with the advanced functionality of the of the kind of later internet, right? So to me, it was sort of this merging of the best of both worlds, um, and th- that's what drew me to it. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I, I've invested, I've been involved with a, uh, as an investor, invested in a bunch of things in the space, and have been involved in the space for a long time. For me, what what was highlighted in the last, you know, you mentioned FTX and all the other stuff that happened was you know, so much of the coverage of the of the space focuses on speculation, trading, prices, financial use cases. Um, I have been preaching the stuff that I wrote in my book for years, um, but clearly, and, and I think some people it has landed with. But but my book is an attempt to spread that message to a wider audience and to try to shift the conversation somewhat. Uh, into a, a broader conversation around the consolidation of tech and the, you know, away from just finance um, and trading into what I describe as the more productive uses for blockchains that, and, and what I see them as is a powerful tool for counteracting this consolidation, for returning the internet to its original ideals, for building an exciting new wave of internet services. Um, and look, specifically, like I've been going to DC a lot last couple of years and, Literally, almost every meeting, the you know, lawmakers or the staff will say, "What book should we read?" And, and there's some great books in the space. There's great books about Bitcoin. There's great books about you know Coinbase and Ethereum. I felt like there wasn't kind of a updated, full survey that explains from first principles to non-technical audiences why this matters in the context of the internet, why it should be important, why it's a society. It should be a societal goal, or or at a minimum, a societal goal to not, you know, ban the technology, let's say. Um, so, like, wh- why why the proliferation of this technology it can, can have very positive effects. That, that's kind of my core. And, 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 look, it was also just, I'll speak personally, it was a test to myself. Um, I, I think it's Richard Feynman who said, if you can't explain something to a, I forget, it was a five-year-old, a ten-year-old, I should look this up, I, um, I forget. But, yeah. um, 
uh, if you can't explain it to a 10 year old, you don't really understand it. Like, or a high school student or whatever. Like I think people in yeah. the industry, people like me kind of fall back on jargon a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what I wanted to do is I wanted to say, um, someone said, Hey, you should try to write it for a smart high school. Do student. I have like, the discipline and the tenacity to yeah. break yeah, it down? And, can, and, and, and am I, and honestly, like, am I right? Like you have to, to be able to write a book, like I think if people read this book, they'll find it to be very non-jargony. They'll find it to really explain these things in detail with no hand waving and no hype. Um, and, and to really kind of go through and explain the process, you know, how, how power works on the Internet, how money flows on the Internet um, and why uh, services built in this new way can have all these benefits. Right. So for me, it was also a chance to kind of test myself um, and see if I could really do that. So so that's what the book is. Um, it, it starts with the history of the Internet. It then gives a kind of a, 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 a quick overview of blockchains and tokens and kind of the core technologies in the space. Um, it then dives deeply into how that blockchains and networks built on top of them can provide benefits. I have a you know, section on how it provides benefits to software developers. I have a section on take rates, which is really how it de- provides benefits to creative people, influencers, startups. I have a section on network governance. I have a section where I explain kind of tokenomics and how that works. And then finally, and then I have a Another section that kind of talks about some of the regulatory issues and securities law and try to kind of some of the current controversies. And then the final section, I take seven um, application areas and go very specific. So finance, social networking, uh, media, AI. And I go very specifically because you often hear these people say, you know, what problems do blockchain solve? Like, isn't this just some, you know, like nerds, you know whatever, trading tokens or whatever, like, is it actually solving real people's problems? And so I took that as a challenge to say, I'm going to go deep into seven areas and I'm going to really, you know, show what problems it's like, why this should matter to people. Even if you don't care about blockchains and everything else, it should matter to you because it's about creating a better internet. Right. Um, so that's, that's the book. Um, I, I hope that folks, you know, in crypto find it interesting. I hope maybe for you, Frank, like, obviously, you know, the blockchain and stuff. Um, Maybe the history stuff is interesting. I think maybe the, you know, later on when I get into the application areas, I think some of what I do, you know, I have the privilege in my job to meet with great entrepreneurs. And so some of what I do is kind of summarize and crystallize a lot of things I've learned from them. And so I hope for people in crypto it's valuable. But I really hope also it's the book that you recommend, you know, when your cousin is like, Frank, what what are you doing with your life? <laughs> I think we've all he had that experience. asking that question. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know a lot of people who've had that question or if you're me, you know, whatever, like I want it to be the book you hand to people and you say, look, this is why this matters. Right. Um, and so, so that's, that's what I tried to set out to do. Um, it, it's interesting. This is kind of just conjecture, uh, conjecture, not really based on any data or anything, but I would assume that the, the, the group or the profile of people, especially in DC, you can correct me if I'm wrong based on your conversations, who feel the most, um, you know, fervor um, against the unbridled monopoly of some of these tech giants also are the most skeptical of crypto and what it has to offer to the internet. Would that, would you say that's fair to say? And I feel like the book kind of addresses um, that type of person or tries to speak to them. I think there's definitely overlap. I think it's, I think it's, my guess is it's folks who are just sort of, you know, skeptical of the tech industry and say, okay, here they go again with another new new thing. And I think what uh, um, 
I believe what is lost in that view is that the tech industry, you know, like a lot of things in life, when you zoom in, it's actually more nuanced, right? And yeah, specifically, like we we as a firm, like people might think of Andreessen Horowitz as like big tech. We're, we're actually small tech. Like we depend on startups having a level playing field and a vibrant level playing field. So it's not just crypto, by the way, like AI, I think in many ways, you know, we're big advocates of open source software and open source AI. And in that way, we're we're in many ways in opposition to the big tech companies. I think blockchains are another example. Um, our business depends on having a vibrant internet. If we have an internet that's controlled by four companies, there isn't going to be a great internet investment startup yeah. business anymore. <laughs> okay. So, so, and look, one thing, another thing I'd say I realize is part of why I think this message is lost in DC. When I started going to DC a couple of years ago, my reaction, what I heard a lot was, Hey, that's interesting. No one's ever expressed those views before, you know, and, and what I realized is that small tech startups is not really represented there, right? So big banks, big tech, they're all over the place. You know, like they probably have second homes there, or, you know, they basically of live course. there. Um, so that you know, makes it incumbent upon firms like A16Z. Yeah, because like, look, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a 10 person startup, I don't expect you to have a decent, I mean, you don't have the, you know, you're trying to survive, right? You're trying to build a product. Most startups are just trying to build their product and, you know, and I don't know, keep the lights on, right? Sure. It's hard. It's hard to run a startup. Um, and so we, we, we said, you know, it's, hey, we're one of the few scaled institutions that does represent startups and we feel like startups are not being represented properly. And so we're going to step up and do that. Um, and, and that's why we've, you know, I, I, we've done a bunch of announcements around policy stuff. I've probably spent, I don't know, at least a third of my time in the last, if not half my time in the last year or two on it. Um, and and in some ways, the book is part of that um, in the sense that I do, you know, my hope would be that this could be something that when I go to D.C., I hand them the book and, you know, maybe maybe they'll read it um, <laughs> and maybe uh, we can start to shift the conversation. I mean, like just for example, or the they message, can listen to it because there's also an audio book. There's an audio book. There's a there's a Kindle book. I'm a little audiobook. upset and, that I wasn't asked to be the uh, the reader of that. But <laughs> well, I digress. Maybe, we could maybe we could do a version a version with you reading it. I don't think people would get through the first five pages. I mean, I, I mean, I guess people listen to this show, but yeah. probably um, in spite of uh, my nasally Jersey accent. Um, so I find it. So what happened, Chris? Break down how we went from, you know, an Internet that was open source um, DNS at the heart of it and to something that yeah. like how did the Pandora's box yeah. open to allow for this concentration about which uh, a lot of the book uh, focuses. Yeah. And, and, and so to clarify, like that other internet still exists. I mean, the web exists, the internet, which is a layer below the web exists, email exists. Um, but the practical reality is if you're a creator or a startup or, you know, and you want to reach an audience, like you need to have, for example, a mobile app and to have a mobile app, you have to go through Apple or Google and they take 30% and they have all sorts of rules. And so, you know, and to, and, and for practical purposes, you have to go through Google and you have to go through Facebook. So to be clear, um, you know, th these are new layers built on top, but they, but all of the attention shifted to those layers. And so as a result, um, those layers, you know, de facto, those layers became the new power brokers as opposed to the open layers. Um, 
the case study I use in the book, uh, I go through in detail and, you know, I try to make the book, by the way, you know, I tell a lot of stories. I'm hoping to make it, you know, not, you know, sort of more narrative. Um, and there is a lot of information there, but a lot of it's sort of narrative. Um, I go through the story of YouTube um, and and how YouTube, you know, YouTube was started in 2005. The, I was around, you know, I was an entrepreneur then. Um, I remember the you know, bandwidth had just kind of passed, sorry, broadband had just passed like 50% penetration, believe it or not. It was actually like kind of a, <laughs> it was actually a debate, believe it or not, in the early 2000s as to whether people would ever adopt broadband. I have that in my book. McKinsey did a survey and people said they would never would. It sounds crazy now. Um, I'm sure we have some but, similar crypto surveys yeah, uh, from yeah. 2015. So, so it was like this controversial new thing. And like if you have broadband, maybe people want video and some entrepreneurs started companies. And um, there were some that were doing kind of you know more like taking CBS content and trying to license it and put it on the internet. And YouTube took this sort of social video approach of saying, let's just have kind of an empty website and anyone can upload things. And, and, you know, it, and then they also, what they did, um, was they, a lot of people then at the time would go to blogs. So that maybe they go to my blog or something and I wanted to embed video. And so YouTube had this, this, they did this tactic I call come for the tool, stay for the network, which is they said, Hey, Chris, you can just upload your video to YouTube, embed it in your blog and it's all free and we'll subsidize it. Um, and, and the alternative was I would use an open system like RSS. So RSS was quite popular in that era. It was actually like, you know, neck and neck as popular as YouTube. And it was actually more popular probably 2005 than YouTube. Like it was a dominant way to do video and social in 2005, more than, you know, I don't think Twitter had even launched yet. And like Facebook was nascent and YouTube had barely launched. Um, and so, so as a blogger, I had a choice. Do I want to use the open thing or do I want to use YouTube? Now, the big advantage of YouTube is first, they made it easy. But secondly, most importantly, they subsidized it. So video hosting was very expensive. And they said, we'll make it free. How do they make it free? Venture capital, right? So the venture capitalists put money in. <clears throat> and if you go look at it, Twitter, Facebook, they all raised many billions of dollars before they ever went public. And a lot of that money went to subsidization. So that's one example of how what these new services One is they made it super easy <clears throat> and they subsidized it with many, many billions of dollars. The and early internet version of airdrops, maybe. It, it, it actually, it's quite similar to airdrops. <laughs> it was, airdro it was trans invisible airdrops. You didn't mm -hmm. see that. It, you know, it wasn't as, maybe it's points. It wasn't as fun. <laughs> it's, it was yeah, points, it's points. Oh, we don't want to get into points. <laughs> so it was I would a, love to get your opinion the, on points. The 2005 version that. of points. Yeah, so anyways, but, uh, but look, that was a heavy, and, and RSS and these open protocols, they were like, you know, they were like all these things. They were a bunch of <clears throat> hackers and they didn't have any fun funding. <clears throat> and it was a little bit, you know, clunky. And, you know, you fast forward, the iPhone came out that if you look at the graphs, the iPhone 2007, the apps are 2008, that just dramatically accelerated adoption. And, you know, what that kind of had the effect of doing was the taking the social networks that were ahead and really entrenching their lead, you know, and then that just sort of kept going for the throughout the 2010s. And we end up today, you know, 2024. And, it's just incredibly consolidated. So, so anyways, I go through kind of in, in, in definitely more detail in the book um, <clears throat> to try to explain what happened. Um, but essentially, it's the story of, on the one hand, this kind of Faustian bargain we made where on the one hand, we, we got these great services. On the other hand, by doing so, we handed over all of the control of, uh, you know, global <laughs> money, culture, and, uh, you know, uh, business and politics and everything else to essentially five companies. And it's through these networks that we can kind of retake that control. But uh, do these large companies serve as an impediment in your view? Uh, funny enough, it seems like every time one of these large tech companies wants to do something in crypto, the government shuts it down 
or gets in the way? Yeah. Is it is it through those types of, um, you know, if we were to think about something like Libra, right? If that were to have actually happened, are these uh, avenues by which large tech companies can actually get in on this story as well? Or is part of this story them ultimately becoming or becoming uh, rendered um, irrelevant, I guess would be the word. Yeah. I mean, like it's obviously early on and too early to, you know, make for me, I don't want to make, you know, claims like that. I think that, that, uh, that, it, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of what we're talking about in the blockchain space is in, uh, in a, in a, is a much small earlier phase than these, these big giant companies at, at this stage. Um, I do think it's a good question. I think, you know, if you kind of, there's a sort of this whole area like Clay Christensen disruption theory. Um, one of the key ideas is that, um, is that uh, it's harder for incumbents to compete in areas when the business models are misaligned with their own business models. So, for example, Facebook and Google are so dependent on tracking everything you do, serving you ads, the idea that you'd have, you know, cryptographically preserved privacy, the user would have control of these things, the, the, the idea that um, you know, they're so used to locking you in, you go to Facebook or Instagram, you're locked in, you build an audience, you can't leave, you know, crypto is all about giving the user the freedom. So if you look at these new social networks like Lens and Farcaster, you know, the user is allowed to build an audience, but also leave and take their audience with them. So, so many of the values of block of, around the blockchain space, I think are in opposition to the values of those companies that I think it makes it less likely that they would <clears throat> sort of earnestly uh, get involved. Um, but you know, it's TBD and, and maybe over time as the space grows, they will get more involved. But, um, I, I do think, um, you know, I do, I, you going back to the policy side. I mean, my view is we don't really need help from them or even help from Washington. We just need Washington to, to sort of stop, um, doing all the things that, that they're doing to essentially slow us, slow down the blockchain space. And by doing that help, the big tech incumbents. Um, and, you know, we can talk more about the policy stuff. So that, that's kind of my hope is that over time we have uh, smart policy that, um, you know, for me, smart policy is you look at a technology holistically. Uh, you look at, you know, what blockchains are a tool. You can do good things with them and bad things with them. Um, I, in my book, I describe, you know, I try to make a strong case for the good things you can do with them. A smart policy will then say, okay, well, let's design policy to maximize the good and minimize the bad, right? Same with AI today. Like with AI, it can, you can build, you could be a new creative a golden age or you can build bioweapons. Like presumably a smart policy will try to optimize the former and <laughs> eliminate the latter. Um, uh, and so, you know, I would love to see a smart policy around it that says, hey, there are productive use cases. Um, those would be good if, you know, we don't know, I don't think, you know, we can't say for sure that any of this will work, but, you know, I think it's worth taking a shot and there's a lot of entrepreneurs who think it's worth taking a shot and we want to support them. Um, and, you know, and there is some possibility that, that this works and all of these blockchain applications grow. And, um, and, and if so, I think could create a much more vibrant and, um, uh, you know, just, dynamic and interesting internet than we have today. I think it, uh, the book does a good 
job at balancing sort of it's not it doesn't read like a textbook necessarily, but it's also not overly superfluous um, in terms of the narrative aspect. So it kind of blends together both of those um, characteristics quite well. And chapter, I think, seven and six, you break down the differences or sort of outline blockchain networks versus tokens. And it, it's also something that I think um, like the, the difference between those two things is often something that even founders uh, grapple with in operating in this space. So it's it's fairly interesting to um, juxtapose those two. What is your thinking um, generally um, about how those two things are maybe complementary, the idea of a blockchain network versus a token, and maybe sometimes how might they get in the way of each other? Yeah, I mean, we, we see them separated, like, you know, Coinba you know, Coinbase's base is an example, right? It's a network um, with no token. So they aren't, you know, as you mentioned, they can be separate. Um, I think of, you know, you think of, let's just take Ethereum, because it's probably the most widely understood, I assume, with your listeners. I think what's really interesting in a case like Ethereum is you have a network, um, and a network is, you know, computers, developers, smart contracts, all these different kind of nodes in the network, and they're all connected to each other. And as more people join the, you know, a network has the property that the more people that join it, the more valuable it gets, right? As it's called a network, economists call it a network effect, right? Um, the, um, uh, uh, you know, Ethereum also has sort of an internal economy, right? You you pay for gas um, and that gas is in order to access the network. Um, there were, I think, roughly $2 billion paid in gas fees in the last year. So it sort of has inbound money that comes in. And then that money, some of that money is then, then it sort of circulates around the economy, so to speak, right? It, some of it is burned. Some of it is distributed to stakers. I have a section in the book where I, you know, I talk, walk through the faucets and sinks framework, which is not my framework, but I think it's, I hope it's like, I hope I distill the best thinking in the space. That's what I tried to do. Um, and, and sort of things I've heard from, yeah, all the best kind of protocol designers. And so it has this internal economy and the internal economy is, is meant to achieve a few things, right? It's meant to keep it decentralized. It's meant to reward the people that, um, provide the, essentially the hosting services, right? Which is what validators do. Um, it's meant to keep the system secure. And so there's a bunch of goals you have and then you, um, and then anyway, so that, so that's in that case, like Ethereum, that's a relationship. The token is kind of this internal microeconomy, um, and the network is this, you know, computer in the sky that anyone can access and you can develop smart contracts for and you can build new networks on top of. This is a little bit, it gets a little bit complicated, right, as you, as you have networks upon networks. So, you know, Uniswap is a network upon a network, which is Ethereum, which, by the way, itself is on top of a network, which is the Internet. Um, and so, you know, the, the sort of turtles all the way down. There's all these layers of networks. Um, but uh, yeah, and so I, you know, I have a chapter on tokens. I have a chapter on blockchain networks. Uh, I have a chapter on um, uh, sort of uh, uh, faucets and sinks, um, and, and sort of how you design these systems, tokenomics, um, and um, and then some sections that kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about sort of the financial cycles and just sort of the implications of tokens and why they're valuable. Oh, and then I talk about some of the use, some of the ways in which they can be useful, including, you know, one is. I think making users owners and rewarding them for their contribution. So, so much of the internet was built by the users, right? Like who built Uber, who built Instagram, like sure. Mark Zuckerberg and people or whatever, or Kevin Systrom and the founders of Instagram built Instagram, but really you go to Instagram, not because of the software, you go there because of the content. 
and the content creators really built it, right? So much of the internet is built by the users, and yet the users aren't rewarded. So another use of tokens is to fix that and reward those users for their contribution. Another use of tokens is um, to to get over what's called the bootstrap effect when you're building a network, right? When you're building a net, the cold start problem, people call it. Um, when you're building a network, you know, you have a dating site, and there's one person on the dating site that's not going to be a very useful dating site, right? Probably not until you get, I don't know, 10,000 people on a dating site. Do you have enough kind of quote unquote liquidity to make it interesting to people? For me, you um, probably so need 100,000, kind of, I, would, I would say. Yeah. I, I, like, I don't know. I'm, I've been married a long time. I haven't done using these apps, but from what I, my guess would be, yeah, 100,000. I don't know what. So you need some minimum level or Uber, right? If you, if you're building a car ride sharing thing, if you have one car driving around New York city, it's not going to be very useful. So there's another use of tokens is to kind of, is to provide liquidity, sorry, to provide rewards early on to help incentivize people to join the network until you reach that point where you have the network effect and you no longer need those tokens. So it's, tokens are really interesting topic. There's a, you know, number of sections and chapters in the book that kind of walk through all these things. Um, Now tokens also raise, concerns, right? Which is you can have somebody take a token. What I see is sort of the casino culture of like the FTXs of the world or just not even FTX, but just some of the offshore exchanges and just kind of more of the culture of trading and um, speculation the is you take D-gen the tokens. underbelly. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not anti-DGEN. I'd like the way I view it is like like think about home ownership, okay? Like the like the reason we have we have home ownership is it, there's a, there's a psychological benefit to owning a home. There's a societal benefit. People are incentivized to improve their home. Mm-hmm. They're incentivized to improve their community. Like I think we as a society have decided home ownership is important. We also have home ownership degens, as you said, right? Sure. We have people that flip houses. That's a really and there's all these point. TV shows. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> all this other stuff around it, and and like the and, and, and they play a. Yeah, but they, they play a role, sure. and I think you know I think uh, and, a, and a and a positive role in some ways, right? Because they provide liquidity, they provide price discovery, and I think generally in this country we we come we believe that markets you know markets and speculation um, plays a role. Now, I think what what I would emphasize is that the point of tokens is to be um, to power these networks, to help build these networks, um, to you know ultimately build services that are useful to lots of people as well like and to steward them and 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 that's the purpose like i'm not against dj culture but i think we're putting the cart before the horse sometimes the the casino the kind of the speculative speculative culture like it should exist but it should be a byproduct the focus should be on the productive uses of tokens how tokens help you build better networks that ultimately lead to useful services yes and as you said that let communities govern the networks for example let communities earn from the networks like that's that should be the focus. And that's part of why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to kind of put the spotlight on that aspect of tokens and not the trading aspect, which I feel like gets all the attention. Well, yeah. And I think that's super important for a book like this because I'm sure there are a lot of folks who might at first glance just think, well, okay, fair enough uh, to to kick back more of the, the uh, revenue uh, to users, right? Like what Elon Musk is doing with X. Um, but that's just part of it, right? And X is a really great example because we're constantly seeing the sort of, okay, sure, you're, you're doing revenue sharing, but there's no stewardship. And this guy and, and the folks involved can kind of do whatever they want. And it's resulted in a lot of headaches for or 
for some people, I mean, some people obviously still very much enjoy the platform, but um, it, it illustrates um, the, the, the sort of gap of, uh, or the sort of missing element of having ownership in the direction of how this product operates, which to be fair though, some people just simply might not care about, but I think most people do for products that you love. Yeah. I, look, I, I, I guess my view is that I, the, these are just incredibly important systems. Like these, you know, social networks, I think 10 years ago, people thought maybe it was like, you know, people sharing what they had for lunch. They now, <laughs> they it's now the drive. Public disc, it's the, it's the it's, public, it's, um, it's public discourse. It's, it's yeah, it's the town square. It's all of the public discourse. It's, and it's, you know, has a huge impact on culture, business, politics. And so I think 10 years ago when it was seen as kind of this, you know, sideshow, okay, who cares if some people in at a tech company have full control of it? I think now we have to say, is that the right way to do it? Um, number one, I also think on the economic point I would make is that like if you look at like the TikTok creator funds and these things, they are – I tried to do the math and I have some in the end notes in the book. But they are sub 1% of um, the revenue. So they are tiny. And then you contrast that with, you know, let's just take Uniswap, where 65 through the airdrop and through other rewards, 65% of the tokens went to, the, or I think either went to or will go to the community. Um, it's just a dramatic difference in, in scale, um, the, the sort of the economic distribution uh, of these blockchain networks versus uh, their they're kind of their uh, centralized counterparts. You're, I mean, you're really showing the value. You're showing, you're showing the economic value. I think chapter eight, you, you, um, on take rate, you have the quote from Jeff Bezos: um, "Your margin is my opportunity." It's a take the take rate section. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. I think you're the first person that's mentioned it to me. Um, I, I like, I really like that. I mean, I worked a lot really hard on that section. I think it's really, really important. I think it's just overlooked a lot. Is it because because it's sort of a Take rate, like everyone in venture capital, like internet people know, like it's just a common term among like, I don't know if you've been in the internet for a while, but outside of the sort of insiders, like I think most people don't even know what that word means, right? And, and you know, it, it's sort of hidden in a way, like with the way that TikTok does it, right? You don't see their revenue. You don't see that they're taking all the money because they, they do have a good job of making it opaque, right? You know, they put up the ads, they... The, the, the total revenue of social networks of the top five social networks last year was $150 billion. This is a big business. Um, if that money were to go out, I do the math in the book. If that money were to go out to users, it would create like 2 million jobs at sort of the average American salary. Um, and I view it as had the social networks been structured in a sort of open protocol way where the, where the intermediary at the center, the big company wasn't taking all the money, that's $150 billion that would have been sent out to creators and users and a year. It's it, These things have big – so the reason I like I, I mentioned the take rate chapter is I just think it has – these have big consequences. We're not talking about, you know, hey, should the – like I think a lot of people say, hey, this is just about deplatforming or control. No, this is, this is very meaningful economics of the internet uh, are, are a product of how these systems are designed. Um, and, 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 you know, and especially I think as – you know, the internet gets more consolidated, AI comes along, generative AI comes along. I think that's going to put pressure on a lot of existing creative jobs on the internet. Like we need to think about economic models on the internet. And it's not just because it would be good for the world. I think it would be good for the world, but it's also good for the internet. Like, I don't think the internet's sustainable 
uh, in a, the vibrant internet that we all love is sustainable if we don't have a way to have the money flow, you know, in a very sort of broad sense. Um, I'll, I'll just give you another example, like, um, you know, little, little media companies like Stack, I want to stack overflow So stack overflow. I used to be on the board of stack overflow. Um, they, uh, you know, it's a programmer Q and a site and it was one of the main sources of training data for a lot of the AI systems. Now the AI systems give you the code answer and you don't need to search for stack overflow anymore. And so stack overflows traffic is way down. I'm not against these. I'm pro AI systems. I think if there's a better way to do something with AI, we should do it that way. But I think we also need to think about, okay, if, if you're kind of cannibalizing the thing that the thing that helped to create you, we need to rethink like, what are the business models for, for those? You know, what's, what's going to happen in a world where you no longer need to go to an artist's graphic design site to, to, and buy their art. You can just get it from, you know, mid journey or something. Right. Um, don't we want business models to exist on the internet for musicians, for artists, for programmers, for websites that provide value in communities? Um, you know, I, so, so I think these kinds of questions become more urgent, uh, in a world of, yeah, you, know, you need to reconfigure ownership or you're just going to leave a huge segment uh, of the population. And you're going to end up with an destitute. internet that's like literally five things. You go to the five, one of the five AIs, you get an answer and you, you get a picture, you get a piece of code and then you, that you leave, right? Like why even bother clicking through and going and, and seeing the rest of the internet? Like what happens to the internet in that world? I, I, I that's how I view the world. Like that's, that's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of look at it through the lens of like, how do we keep the internet vibrant? And I see a lot of signs that, that we're headed in the wrong direction. And I see blockchain based uh, applications as the only kind of credible counter counterbalance to that trend. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's obviously a potentiality that the momentum is so strong behind the existing status quo that it might be difficult for these networks to kind of reach scale. Um, if we want to look at forecaster or, or lens, uh, less Donnie or Dan Romero, uh, get upset with me. Um, why, what, what is it going to take for them to actually have robust usage? Yeah, I think well, it's, uh, it's a framework I like. Or yeah. I'm just impatient maybe well, because, I think, you know, a lot of people think it's been around for 10 years, but where is the activity? But the, the thing you just mentioned, like the, the, the blockchain social networks, I mean, those are really – um, you know, barely a year old. I mean, so, you know, yeah, I'm yeah, sure Bitcoin's enough. been around 15 years, then Ethereum was 2015. I mean, people say like NFTs, you know, what, you know, that what's going to, it was 2020 that ER, what is it? ERC, is it 721 was standardized? Like, am I confusing my, I think it's the ERC 721. Um, no, that's yeah, um, that, was, that was 2020. I mean, like people forget that, like a lot of this stuff, this thing has gone in these phases, right? It's sort of a multi-stage rocket. And like, the yeah, a lot of these things are relatively new. These lens and forecaster. I mean, you could argue. I mean, every day they're releasing new clients. It's still like kind of emerging. Yeah. But but like I think there's also you make a good point, which is like Excel is Microsoft Excel has been around 50 years and still going strong, even though there's Google Docs yeah. and Airtable and all this other stuff. A lot of technology has just a lot of momentum, um, and that may be the case with social networks. We'll see. Um, I, I think of it as, but there'll always be new networks created. Maybe there'll be AI networks. Maybe there'll be, you know, metaverse networks. Maybe there'll be, so that, you know, we're 30 years into the internet. Like it's hard for me to believe that an invention as important as the internet 
that after 30 years, it's like done, right? Like, I think there's going to be more stuff. Yeah, so so I think like, you make a good point though. Like, I think some of the, some of the investments we have are kind of going after existing categories like social networking and some are going after these kind of, in, in software, sometimes they call it brownfield, greenfield. Like, are you going after existing or new? Um, and so I think it's an interesting question and um, they have different challenges and it may be that some things are just too entrenched and like, you know, the same way Microsoft Excel is and maybe some things people are more open to new ideas. Um, it's also just, you know, it's 5 yeah. billion people. You can, you don't have to get all 5 billion to be successful. Yeah, There's a lot there, of people on the there internet. There are a lot of us. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the extent to which um, tokens have not been looked at as um, of a strong alternative to existing incentive uh, structures, right? Especially for, you know, you think of things like ride sharing and, and, and Uber, I think Drizzly, I mean, is, that was a pretty brutal um, outcome where you, you kind of, these things are just getting too expensive, right? Um, for most ordinary folks to use. So how do you get them to use it? Um, I think, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of uh, those companies are just afraid of the regulatory situation. I think the the lack of regulatory clarity has really, really, it, what, what it does is because, everything plays out in court. You know, we have the Coinbase case and mm -hmm. these things and the court cases will take many years to figure out. They'll be appealed. And so what happens in the gray area? So like if you're, if you're Uber and you want to add some crypto thing, you're probably afraid to, you've got a big business, you're big market cap. Um, good entrepreneurs are kind of like, do I want to risk getting sued or do I want to just go do something in AI? Right. Whereas bad actors are like, you know, what gray area is probably, you know, given their other career alternatives. Like, <laughs> That's my opportunity. Yeah. Like, do I want to do something clearly illegal or something gray area? <laughs> Somewhat so, illegal. <laughs> so, and then that's what we've seen, I think, a lot of. And it's very frustrating to me. I think we see just the uncertainty uh, attracts um, bad, bad actors and scares away good actors. Um, and that's why our top kind of um, push has been to have a more proactive policy approach. And specifically, I think at this point, that would have to be legislation um, to, to really just clarify this stuff. We, we want is clarity and then we want to, we want a, a, a path for a like what is a responsible path for having a token? I mean, so we already know that Bitcoin is now considered a non-security. It seems like Ethereum is too. Um, so how does, you know, do, are we just stopping innovation at Bitcoin and Ethereum or, you know, is it just like if you were created before some date, it's okay, but anything after that date is bad or is there some pathway for new things to become the way the Bitcoin and Ethereum is right. And that pathway could involve very restrictive things in my view. I mean, it could involve investor lockups, which is actually something we're strong proponents of, um, sure, you know, founder lockups, like other guardrails, disclosures, security audits, whatever it might take. But there needs to be a way that responsible entrepreneurs Let's just set, something, yeah, set up. something up and say, if you're a responsible entrepreneur and you do these things, you have a shot at creating the next Bitcoin, the next Ethereum, the next whatever. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe the next social network that's token powered or the next game that's token mm -hmm. powered, whatever it might be. They just know what the rules are and they can go do it. And by the way, that has the secondary benefit of then allowing the enforcement agencies to have a very clear line too and say, hey, you're out of bounds we're going to go after you. So it's just like makes everybody's life easier and having to go to court for six years. So to your question, I think that there would be a ton more interesting stuff happening and experimentation. If, if we had the clarity. clarity, I think this is by far the number one thing we need is, is to have a path toward which someone can have sort of compliant, you know, 
like responsible innovation, um, and, and a very clear path that would that, that would then encourage many more good actors, including existing incumbent companies, to enter the space. Any um, closing thoughts on the book that we maybe didn't touch on that listeners um, you'd be keen for listeners to sort of um, have a heads up on before they go out and get it on Amazon? Well, like I hope I really tried hard to, I mean, I spent a very long time on it. I spent uh, 12 months, you know, many hours a day. Uh, and, and, uh, so, you know, I hope, I, I hope, I hope people like it. I hope it's useful. Um, I do hope that there's something for everybody. Um, there's a history section for the folks who didn't live through it. And, and it's, and I yes, really try to people who think that VCs can't write their own stuff. This was a hundred percent. That's right. And it's like, look, I, it's 230 pages, main text. I'd written twice as much and cut it out. So I really tried hard to respect the reader's time and, and, you know, um, keep it snappy. Like the history part is probably, I don't think it's like 30, 40 pages. I mean, it's relatively fast. I don't know exactly, but it's relatively fast. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I think for crypto folks, they would like around tokens and applications. Um, I, you know, it's for non, it's meant to be read front to back if you're interested in the topic and you don't have any background. So it also works that way, but it's also chunked into three to four page yeah. blog posts. And this is very deliberate. I spent a lot of time on this and you can go to the table of contents and jump around and those are pretty readable on their own. So, you know, I know a lot of people feel like I've talked to some entrepreneurs like, man, I'm busy. I don't know if I can read a book. And I'm like, well, check out this one section. Maybe you'll like the token section. Maybe you'll like the, yeah. you know, the application section. And so I hope there's something for everybody. I really tried hard. And like everything I wrote, this is not, a you know, like everything I did, every decision I made in the book was what is better for the reader? How can I better explain this topic? You know? And so I really avoid jargon. I, I try to really break things down and give specific examples, avoid sort of hyperbole, superlatives, et cetera. Um, there's, there's 36 pages of endnotes. There's a lot of research done. Um, I hired an outside researcher to double check, to red team me essentially and say, find any errors because I really want to make sure that I'm, that I'm being accurate here and fair. Um, so anyways, I hope people will check it out. Um, and, and then look, I also would say that I, you know, part of what I want to do with this is I'm hoping to, you know, I'd love to, if people have feedback, good faith, counter arguments. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Farcaster. I will. Um, I'm going to try to, uh, in, you know, respond in good to good faith arguments. I won't respond to dunks and dunks and ad hominem arguments, but I'll respond to any good faith arguments. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope this is just the beginning of a dialogue that, you know, and other people will contribute to it. And maybe we can start to focus more on the productive side and the kind of the way that we can use blockchains to build a new wave of internet services um, and move beyond some of the kind of more speculative aspects of the last few years. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for walking us through that. Um, just real quick, I don't know if you saw, um, it was so funny, I think it was Fortune or Forbes juxtaposing a cover story from 2005 in which they described uh, described the age of the unicorn. And a few weeks ago, I guess they put out the age of the unicorpses. Yeah. Um, what's this, give us, you know, before we, we, we get you back to your book tour, um, uh, just a temperature check in the state of venture capital and, and uh, just the sort of new regime that we found ourselves in. Look, I've, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and have been through many cycles uh, in venture capital and like entrepreneurship. Like I was an entrepreneur in 2008, um, 2008, you know, for those who didn't live through, I mean, look, 2001 was just brutal, 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 brutal. I, I have a little bit of stats in my book, like how bad it was when the internet crash fell and like 
And it was it was so bad that, you know, you go to it was kind of like sometimes crypto today. You go to a dinner party and people are like, you, you're people still. I, I remember literally going to MIT and I recruited a, one of my employees for my first startup there. And literally they were all like, is it are, they, wait, they're still Internet startups? <laughs> like they were chuckling like it was like a thing. So that was bad. 2008. I mean, people I had a lot of smart friends who thought it was literally the new Great Depression. Um you know, crypto, obviously, we've had our various winters. So, I, look, I've just seen a lot of these ups and downs. What I always tell startups, and I've told them this for a long time, is, you know, you should always have three to four years of runway. And a lot of investors recommend two years. I've just, having seen enough downturns, um, I believe you should have a longer runway and to be able to get through it. Um, I Look, I, I'm long-term very bullish on technology. I think that we're entering an era where you have blockchains, you have AI, you have VR, self-driving cars. There's just a whole long list of exciting things. You could almost argue that like this is the culmination of, in many ways, you know, 70 years of computing is sort of all coming together now um, through all of these various technologies. So I think it's the innovation level of innovation is very high. Look, it's always a question when you're a startup, you got to survive, yeah. you know, and have the cash. So I'm not in any ways belittling that. But but I, like, I think this is a cycle and we'll come. Yeah. And you guys um, have done a lot of interesting work juxtaposing sort of like the level of innovation, not necessarily matching up with the prices or the asset value of a lot of these things. Yeah, they're almost independent. If someone was asking me today about interest rates and like, you know, because a lot of these theories are that like low interest rates help venture capital. Like, look, I mean, Microsoft and Apple were starting in the 70s. I think they had, I don't know, yeah. 10%. Didn't they have 10%? At some point they had 15, maybe early yeah. 80s, but like 20% interest rates. Um, the dot-com era, the 90s, interest rates were 5%-ish or something. Um, so it's just, it's not that, I mean, obviously interest rates matter. And of course, you know, the, the economy matters, but innovation just tends to move on a separate cycle. Like it's just, it's more about what's changing in the underlying tech. And, you know, what kind of tech breakthroughs are there and all the kind of platform dynamics. And so, you know, like the iPhone came out in 2007, the App Store in 2008. That was right when the financial crisis happened. It turned out in retrospect, that was a great time to start a company or to invest in startups. Yeah. You know, and financially it didn't look like it. But what really Microsoft had their funeral for the have, iPhone. Yeah. And now, yeah. So at the time, if you looked at it from a financial lens, you would have said bad time. If you look at it as, wow, we're now carrying around an internet, internet connected supercomputers in our pocket. Like it's yeah. a good time. Right? So, no, well said. So my lesson has been like, focus on the fundamentals, look at the innovation, look at the technology, and then you got to survive the markets, you know, they're, but they're kind of this crazy thing that bounces around and you got to survive it, but you really need to focus on the fundamentals, which is the tech. Fair enough. Chris Dixon, thanks so much for taking the time. All right. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate Cheers. it. No worries. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Appreciate it.